you would turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis and to chapter 32. You will find it on page 32 of your pew Bible if you're using that. It's maybe the one and only time where the page number and the chapter number actually align, but they do. Genesis 32, where we'll be looking at the first 21 verses. Let me begin this evening by taking a few moments to remind you of what we've been studying together over the past weeks. We're looking at the time of the patriarchs. Patriarch is, uh, kids especially, just a fancy way of saying fathers. This period focuses on men and women who lived by faith in the early years of human civilization. They did not own a Bible or have a local church as we do. Moses was still many centuries away, and so there were not dietary laws or a central temple to worship in. They passed their faith down by word of mouth from Adam to Noah and then down through the line of Shem, Noah's son. In some ways, their lives remind us, and I hope you've seen this, their lives remind us in some ways of our own lives They lived by faith in God's revealed will without a sacred nation or established priesthood. There are some parts of the old covenant that we at times find it hard to relate to. The old covenant, as established by Moses, was focused on a theocracy, a holy nation, with numerous laws that we might find bewildering. But in our fathers and mothers of faith, We find something deep but simple. They lived in various places. Like us, they were surrounded by unbelievers, but they lived for the glory of God. Maybe this is why the Apostle Paul so often in his letters draws New Testament Christians back to the fathers and connects us to the work of Israel through them. So that is our time period. God has chosen Noah Then he's chosen one of Noah's sons, Shem. And then at a critical moment, and in the shadow of the Tower of Babel, we saw he chose Abraham. And just as men were erecting that tower and saying, let's make our name great, God comes to Abraham and says, I will make your name great. The hope of the whole world is now in this one broken family from modern-day Syria. They were not technically Israelites yet. Not yet anyway. Next week we will see how the fathers became Israel. But for now they are a family and not a nation. Now we've come to a critical moment in this family's history. Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah's faith, has had twins by his lovely and bold wife, Rebekah. After years of barrenness, Rebekah is blessed with two boys. But God appears to Rebekah and tells her that he has chosen the younger twin, Jacob, not the older twin, Esau. This went against all tradition, but Rebekah, always a woman of bold faith, accepts God's judgment. But her husband Isaac does not, at least not at first. What ensues is a sad tale of favoritism. Jacob, eventually urged on by his mother, steals Esau's blessing. And that sin drives a deep wedge between Jacob and Esau. It drives the twins apart. 
Jacob ends up fleeing north back to Syria to his uncle's house to escape the wrath of his older brother, who is a mighty hunter. Over the past few weeks, we've watched as God dealt with Jacob under the oppressive hand of Uncle Laban. In great irony, we saw how Laban tricked Jacob again and again. By the end, by the end of their relationship, the oppression is close to slavery. Moses actually again and again uses the language of Pharaoh and Egypt to describe Laban's treatment of Jacob. And as we saw last time, by God's grace, Jacob is able finally to escape with his wives and children and herds. God defends Jacob and his family, and Laban is forced, in the end, to acknowledge his nephew as a distinct people group. Instead of a new wages situation, Laban enters into a covenant with his nephew, and a pile of stones are erected as a monument to separate these two new nations that are being formed. But there's still a greater matter, a greater concern in Jacob's mind. The greater threat, he knows, comes from his older brother Esau. Yeah, Jacob is concerned about Laban, but he's deeply frightened of his brother. Esau is a man of great power with a great host at his command. And once again, Jacob, we find, has the promise of God, but all those promises seem threatened by the harshness of real life. That's where we are this evening. Let me invite you to stand, as is our practice, and we'll read verses 1 through 21 of Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 
30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, it may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that this is the primary means by which you build us up in Christ that the strength that we find to live the Christian life comes from your word. It comes from the administration of your word in our lives by the Holy Spirit. And so we pray uh, this evening that you would open our hearts to your word and that you would make it clear to us and that we would grow together in our holy faith. And these things we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The life of Jacob brings out, maybe more than just about any other life in your Bible, the tough side of God's grace. When we sing or talk or think about God's grace, we tend to dwell on its gentle side. We say, it's amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And grace is an incredibly tender thing. God's grace draws us to love him. When you first see in your life, really see who you are and what Christ has done for you, you're going to be overwhelmed. It can be an experience and it will be an experience for you that you'll never forget. Grace is a sweet thing. And yet grace is also a power to be reckoned with. God's grace is a wrestling power, a wrestling thing, a transforming power. It calls us to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices. It peels off the old man layer by layer, and it sows onto us the new man. Not only this, grace is also, and I know many of you found this already in your lives, it is insatiable, never satisfied until it has been in every room, every closet of our lives. It doesn't just want to pick the bad fruit off your tree. It wants to uproot the whole tree and plant a new one, a new man created in Christ Jesus for good works. Jacob is in need of such a transformation. He doesn't just need to learn to make better deals with people or learn to be a little more honest. No, he needs a new heart, a heart change. He needs to stop living in his own strength and to learn to live by faith. It would be so easy to get this wrong. 
Jacob could send his various animal presents to placate his brother and remain fundamentally unchanged. Before, when we met him early on, he was mean and a deceitful schemer. Now he could simply become a humble schemer, better fruit on the tree. But the heart of distrust, his deep distrust towards God would remain. Grace would have not reached the roots. Superficial change is not the spirit's mission. And we see that so clearly in Jacob's life. Now in this chapter that we'll be studying this week and next week in very dramatic fashion, some of the most high drama that we have in scripture, God's grace pulls Jacob up by the roots. Jacob has learned a lot from his experience with Laban, the 20 years there spent with him. But here are the final challenges to Jacob's faith. Grace has stretched him. Grace is stretching him. Will he trust in God's promises or in his own strength? Will he finally realize who actually has the blessing, who really needs to bless him, or will he continue to rely on his schemes and on his family? This is the critical chapter in Jacob's life. You might recall that in the past we noted that the offering up of Isaac on the altar in Jerusalem and Moriah was sort of the high point of Abraham's faith journey, sort of the ultimate crisis everything was moving towards. It was the culmination, really, of decades of God's gracious work in Abraham's life. Well, this chapter, chapter 32, is Jacob's Mount Moriah. It is the climax of his story, a moment of fierce and wonderful grace. Now, technically, Jacob does not wrestle with God till verse 24, which we'll look at next week. However, the whole chapter is a bit of a wrestling match. Jacob is struggling to trust God in a very dangerous situation, a situation he has been dreading for 20 years. If you've had really difficult moments in your Christian life, you know what this is like. When God takes someone away or your marriage collapses or you lose a child, when something that big happens, you have to wrestle it out with God. We see this in the Psalms of Lament. The psalmist will say again and again, how long, O Lord? Or the psalmist will say, you've crushed me. Why have you done this? We see this in Job, who wonders why he was ever born. It's this intense spiritual wrestling with God that is on display in this chapter. Tonight, I want to look at the first two parts of that. First, let's see how Jacob wrestled to hold on to faith's vision. And second how he fought to hold on to God's covenant. Faith's vision and God's covenant. See first, in I think in verses 1 through 8 especially, how Jacob struggles to hold on to faith's vision. Jacob has returned to the land of promise. He's really right on the edge of it. He's terrified of what lays ahead of him. And in that very setting, God welcomes him back with this wonderful vision in verses 1 and 2. Look at there with me now. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Machanem. 
Remember how Jacob's journey started when he was alone and penniless, running from his brother, going into exile. God gifted him with a vision. Jacob watched, remember, as angels ascended and descended on a stone he was sleeping on. As we noted, the vision was not a ladder. It was not Jacob's ladder. It was neither Jacob's nor a ladder, uh, but rather a temple, a ziggurat temple with many stairs as was common in the land in those days. At the top of the stairway temple was God himself, the angel of the covenant, probably the Lord Jesus Christ in, in reality. And then, uh, if not Christ, certainly the spirit of Christ, we can at least say that. In this wonderful way, God assured him as he went into exile that he would remain with him, that he would never leave him nor forsake him. Now in our text... Just as Jacob is re-entering the promised land, God meets him again with his holy angels. This time, the angels are not climbing the stairway to heaven, ministering to Jacob. Instead, they are arrayed for battle in camps. They are in camps. The Hebrew here is not the camp you make with your kids when you go on vacation in the summer. These are military encampments. Remember last week that when Laban caught up with Jacob, finally, he camped opposite from Jacob's camp with a space of ground in between. And we noted that's how ancient people lined up for battle. He put himself in military posture. This is exactly what Jacob is seeing now as he enters the land. He sees the angels of God, not on the temple, but in military posture in their encampments around him. This is what David meant and. Psalm 34, 7, which we read providentially this morning, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, can you imagine how vivid and how powerful this vision, this moment in Jacob's life was for Moses and the original Israelites who he wrote this book of Genesis 4? Moses is writing, remember, to the Israelites, they've come up out of Egypt, and where are they living? They're living in that upside-down triangle we call Sinai, and they're living in one giant encampment. And at the center of this encampment that they have in Sinai is God's tent. We call it the tabernacle. And God is there because in the ancient world, the leader, the king, dwelt right in the center of the encampment. And so God's house, the tabernacle, is right in the center of Israel's encampment. And then on top of that, we're told that the angel of the covenant existed in a pillar of fire and smoke outside the camp, guiding and leading the people of God. That's probably what David has in mind directly when he says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So as Moses is writing Jacob's story for these people, they know what this means. The angels are encamped around Jacob. They know what he's seeing. The angelic presence of God with his people defending them and loving them and caring for him. Amazed by God's love and protection, Jacob names the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. To be completely honest, we're not really sure exactly what Jacob had in mind here. Did he see two angelic camps, maybe one in front and one behind? Or did he mean to say, here are two camps, my camp, 
my family, and an angelic camp. God and I are camped here together in two encampments. Either way, it really doesn't matter. The point is clear, isn't it? In the words of Psalm 27, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Jacob needs this vision because his struggle to trust God is just about to begin. In fact, it immediately begins in verse 3. I won't reread all those verses, but in verses 3 through 8, Jacob sends messengers to Seir, that is to the nation of Edom. Edom is the country directly to the southeast, the southeast of Israel. Now, why is uh, Esau living there? Why is he not in the promised land? Well, you probably remember that when Jacob left 20 years ago, Rebecca, that section ended with Rebecca saying, I loathe my life because of my son Esau and his pagan wives. And so maybe for the sake of peace, uh, maybe because it was hard for Esau to live with his parents while they walked with God and he didn't, uh, for one of, one of many reasons, maybe it was just the wealth Esau had accumulated. He's become very great. And maybe there wasn't room for Abraham and Isaac and Esau all to live in the same area. Whatever the reason, Esau has moved to this area to Edom, to Seir, and he's living there. And while he's lived there, he's become rich, really, really rich. When you can put 400 men together into a war band, you are right on the verge of becoming a nation. Esau has become great, a great man. And so Jacob is understandably frightened by this report. If his brother was in a forgiving mood, why does he need 400 men with him? Laban chased Jacob with just his kinsmen, maybe 100 men, maybe less. Esau is himself a magnificent warrior, and he has 400 men with him. Jacob is terrified. So Jacob does something he's done before. He takes the vision God gave him of two camps, and he uses it as his strategy. He named, remember the spot, two camps, Mananim. And now in verse 7, he divides his family into two camps so that they can escape if there's a battle. This was a clever scheme. It was a normal part of strategy. But for Jacob, it was a real problem. Remember, Jacob has just received a divine vision of angelic armies, but that wasn't enough. You see visions, dramatic faith moments in our lives so quickly fade, don't they? The vision of faith is so quickly replaced by what you see with your eyes every day. Yes, Jacob saw the angelic camps, but then he saw Esau's 400 men and that vision wrestled the other vision out of his mind. He quickly went from living by faith to living by sight. You know, we think today that if an angel walked down the center aisle of our church, that that would solve all our problems and really change our lives. And to some degree, that's true. It would be wonderful, and I'm sure it would encourage us. But remember, brothers and sisters, that no group of people ever saw as many miracles as the Exodus generation, the generation that escaped Egypt. 
They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw the plagues. They saw a cloud of fire and smoke following them around in the desert. They saw Mount Sinai burning with fire. But what does God say about that generation? He says they will never enter my rest. Visions are not enough. You might recall Jesus' parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. The parable is about a wicked rich man and a poor godly man. The rich man has had a wonderful life by outward experience. He's uh, got lots of money. He's been very successful. On the other hand, Lazarus is a godly poor man whose life was absolutely miserable. After they die, uh, Lazarus is placed in Abraham's arms. That's a way of saying he's at total rest and peace. He's in Shalom. The rich man, despite how things look during his life on earth, is firmly ensconced in hell. He is utterly miserable. And he asks Abraham to send a messenger, probably an angel, to his family, to his brothers back on earth, and to warn them. Abraham's response in the parable is so powerful and so prophetic. Abraham says to this rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. A few chapters later in the story, Jesus will raise a man named Lazarus from the dead. And the text tells us the Jews immediately conspired to murder Lazarus because of his testimony. Do you see the point? If God gave you a vision, a sign, it would not end your faith struggle. It would be a wonderful experience, but you'd be totally shocked to find yourself engulfed in fear and other struggles the next day. Because this is something that happens to me and you all the time. Just as soon as we step out of our devotional closet or out of here after we finish a service, an email comes or a letter comes or a problem comes up in the car on the ride home and we're soaked in anxiety all over again. And so it was for Jacob as he seeks to hold on, hold on to the vision of the angelic camps and yet it slips through his fingers because our faith is weak. So we see, first of all, how he struggled to hold on to the vision that God gave him of the great military of heaven that was on his side. Now see, second of all, in verses 9 through 21, how he lays hold of, uh, much more successfully now, the covenant of God. And especially here, I want to focus on verses 9 through 12 and this wonderful, rich, covenantal prayer that Jacob offers up to God. Look with me again at those verses. They're worth uh, rereading. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Why am I calling this a covenantal prayer? 
I'm doing so because Jacob roots his prayer in God's covenant. That is God's past and present promises. You might say that sounds nice, Pastor. Uh, But the way Jacob says this makes me uncomfortable. I can understand that. If you're not familiar with the Bible and the covenants of the Bible, a prayer like this can almost sound disrespectful. And we might think to ourselves, how dare Jacob remind God of his commitments? It's as if Jacob is saying, God, this is on you. Your reputation is at stake. But you see, that is the very thing that makes it a covenantal prayer. It's a prayer that throws itself on God and God's promises alone. Notice how Jacob is very clear here. He is not asking God. He is not asking God to do this because his prayer is perfect or his life is perfect. I think if we're honest with ourselves, often when we pray, um, our hope is that in, in the prayer itself, that somehow it might be perfect Or persuasive, or that our lives will in some way impress God. But you notice uh, Jacob has none of that delusion, especially after what he's been through. And so in verse 10, he even says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfastness. Really, the word there, covenant love that you've shown me. This is so beautiful. Don't miss it. Jacob is saying, There's no merit here. To use Jesus' parables, Jacob is saying, when I've done everything right, which I've never done, even then I'm just doing my duty. I'm an unprofitable servant. I'm not accruing any merit through my life. Jacob is admitting that by his works, he doesn't have God over a barrel. God is in no way obliged to him in the way of merit. But, and this is the key, At the very same moment, Jacob says, I do, though, in some sense, have God over the barrel. I do have a right to insist because God gave me that right. This is what God has done for us in the covenant. This is one of the reasons we so passionately preach the covenant in our church The covenant is the legal, binding, sworn commitment of God to you and to me. He cannot go back. He cannot retract it. He is sworn by himself. He is sworn in the blood of his son. So John can write in 1 John, if we confess our sins, what? He'll be nice and maybe forgive us? No, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins. John is saying he must do it because he's sworn to do it. For God, it is a matter now of justice and faithfulness. He has to do it not because of any merit of ours. Jacob's ruled that out, but because he's sworn to do it through his covenant, through his promises. A lot of people in the church, and I want to be careful here, I I love all my brothers and sisters in Christ, but this needs to be said. A lot of people in the church have a very milky, very weak view of their salvation. When they think about their salvation, they say, you know, I asked Jesus into my heart at such and such an age, and now Jesus helps me with my life. Now that is not, that's not altogether wrong. 
Jesus does take residence in us through his Holy Spirit when we become a believer. And we are urged, urged by Scripture to ask him to come and dwell within us. This is not so much wrong as it is just immature. It's a good place to start, but not a good place to live. The covenant, on the other hand, is so much bigger and better than that. The covenant starts not with me and my heart, but with God and his heart. The covenant is God's way of giving his whole self to me. It's so much more than Jesus as a sort of poly pocket inside my heart. In the words of Hosea, he becomes our God and we become his people. The bonds of love are strong, eternal, and rooted in hundreds of rich promises and events. Through covenantal thinking, biblical thinking, we learn that we were placed in Jesus, in a covenant in Jesus, as Paul says, before even time began. And we learn that God is not just working in me and not just taking up residence in my heart, but that he has brought me into a huge work of new creation that involves millions of people around me. Jesus is not just in my heart. He is a bold covenantal God ruling the nations and building a church. And so notice that Jacob says, you are the God of Abraham and Isaac. Jacob understands that God is working in his family. It's not just me, my Bible, and Jesus. There is a church, you see. There's a people of God, and I'm part, and you're part, of that great covenantal people, a people called out, a people set apart. This is a taste, just a taste, of praying the covenant, a mature prayer. This is when you can say, let the whole world be a liar, and it is, but God will tell the truth. As Jacob said, you are the God, you are the God who said to me, I will surely do you good. Jacob pleads the covenant. He grabs hold of God's word. Robert Murray McShane, a great Scottish evangelist, cited this prayer of Jacob in a letter written to a newly converted woman. And he makes this comment. He says, it is a blessed, it is a blessed way of praying to pray upon a promise and to plead do as thou hast said. Considered by many the greatest theologian of the English-speaking world, world, John Owen also loved this prayer. He says this, When a man takes himself for relief to God's covenant, he reminds God of it, wherewith God is greatly delighted, because therein, in the covenant, God has wrapped up his greatest glory in this world, and God is greatly delighted to be put in remembrance of that wherein he hath wrapped up the glory of his grace. Then he says, and this is so powerful, God would have us remind him of the covenant. So his memory of it is laid at the bottom of all the good he does to us. God's goodness to me to you, to your family, to our church, is not random. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. Jacob knew himself to be bound to God with cords of covenantal love and promise. In the New Testament especially, Jesus has tied himself to you 
and me with 10,000 promises. Do you know that? You have so much more tonight than just a memory of asking Jesus in your heart many years ago. You have a thousand promises that Jesus has made, and critically, he has sealed them to you in the new covenant in his blood. If you're a Christian, your promises are written in the ink of his blood. Are your prayers then, are your prayers grabbing hold of these unshakable covenantal promises? Or are you stumbling around in your prayer life? Are you trying to find something in yourself that might persuade God to be good to you? Or are you saying to him, well, I go to church, I'm trying to follow you, so throw me a bone. Or are you like Jacob, learning to wrestle with God's covenant? The vision of the angels and their camps was so quickly lost. But prayer is where God's people do their best wrestling. We've seen then Jacob's wrestling for vision, the struggle to see by faith and not by sight. Like Elisha's servant, we need our eyes opened to see that many more are with us than are with our enemies, to see that God is with us and his angels are with us, even when it seems that the wicked are blessed and that the wicked have all the power. Esau has his 400 men, but Jacob has the hosts of heaven. Why then is Jacob so afraid? Why are we so afraid? We've also seen Jacob wrestling in prayer. We've seen how he takes hold of God's faithful promises to his fathers. He wraps himself in the certainty of God's word to him. He calls on God to honor his word and promise. God loves to be reminded of his promises. He loves it when we detach ourselves from our many idols and cling to him alone when we take him at his word. On the surface, it may seem disrespectful, but really what is disrespectful to God is to have his promises and not to claim them, not to rely on them with all you have and all you are. This is intense stuff. Now, do you see why I say and began this evening by saying that grace is a wrestling force. But we've not reached the end tonight. It all comes to a climax next time when we read of a face-to-face wrestling match with God himself. Not to get too far ahead here, but here is one of the greatest wonders of your Bible. Jacob wrestles with God, and amazingly, Jacob will win that match. Most of you know, spoiler alert, but I think most of you know that's where we're going. Now, how can that be? How is that possible? Isn't it blasphemous, even disrespectful, to even say something like that? Well, for tonight, don't miss this. The answer to that question is in Jacob's prayer. The answer is the covenant. Jacob wins, not because he's stronger than God, but because he has a promise and God cannot lie. God has promised to bless Jacob. He must do it. If God wins the wrestling match next time, Jacob goes unblessed and God's covenant is shattered. In covenantal promises, God gives himself to us and takes us to himself. 
The reason the angels serve us and guard us, the reason we wrestle and ultimately prevail is not because of our saintly achievement. It's not because of prayers by the saints or Mary. It's not because of a mysterious sacrament we ingest or a religious rite that we undergo. We win in the end because in an act of breathtaking condescension and mercy, the living God has given himself to us. He's given himself to us in covenant. He has chosen to make friends with sinners like you and me. And when we begin to truly understand this, we can wrestle with him in might and strength, reminding him of his promises, which delights his heart and winning those wrestling matches because he chooses to let us win for we claim and name him and his covenant. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we must confess tonight that at times our prayers and our thoughts are much like Jacob's. We are covered in anxiety and fear. Our prayers often look like that as well. They're weak and timid. We don't really claim the promises or even understand our covenant with you. We pray your forgiveness for these things, and we pray and ask that you would help us to see the wonderful covenant that we have with you through Jesus Christ, our dear friend and Savior. We ask that seeing him and his glory by faith through his word, we would have hope and we would claim the covenant as our own and see the promises given to us and that you would fill us with faith and then enable us to wrestle in mighty prayer with you. Father, we could never prevail with you or with anyone in our own strength, but you have equipped us beyond what we understand through your covenant. Help us to see that and to pray through that. We ask it all. In Jesus' name, amen.